Tigers dropped their series opener to the Angels 5-2 and in the process put up their 17th double-digit strikeout game of the season in 32 tries. I'll break down the game and talk a bit about Miguel Cabrera and lineup protection and finish with a couple questions about Tigers minor leaguers on today's Locked on Tigers podcast. It is Wednesday, May 8th, 2019, and I am your host, Chris Brown, and I sincerely hope that your night wasn't spent cleaning up vomit and changing sheets like somebody else I know, but if it was... Uh, maybe you could take some solace by subscribing to the Locked on Tigers podcast and rating and reviewing the show on your favorite podcasting apps like Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, and Himalaya. And of course, tell your smart device to play podcast Locked on Tigers. So just quick uh, news and notes before we get into the, the game recap. Kristen Stewart was back in Detroit, but you're going to send him back down to Lakeland for a few more games of rehab. I guess it was too cold. Blaine Hardy did actually pitch in Lakeland picking up two strikeouts in a scoreless inning, so he should be getting close to return. And Jordan Zimmerman was playing long toss in the outfield before the game, so he might be on his way back. And Ron Gardenhire was forced to leave the game in the third inning last night with an allergic reaction to something. He broke out in hives and his face was swelling up. We know it wasn't a reaction to strikeouts because if that were the case, he would have died already. But anyway, so this game was Daniel Norris versus Griffin Canning. It was 51 degrees and probably felt a bit colder, so not a great night for baseball, but Norris goes out there and it was a pretty quick first inning. He gave a, a one-out walk to Mike Trout, which is probably a wise choice, and then Shohei Otani was back for the first time in seven months. So that was nice to see because he's such a talented guy, but Norris was able to strike him out swinging on a slider alone away. And then he got the final out of the inning, 19 pitches. Bottom of the first, the Tigers fly out. Nick Castellanos with a deep fly ball to the right field warning track. That's probably a homer when it gets warmer, but for now it was just a pop out. Cabrera reeks out, reaches out on a an 89-mile-hour slider below the zone. I don't know how he hit it, and, and hit a little grounder to shortstop. Andrelton Simmons, the best defensive shortstop in baseball, and he randomly throws it into the first row. So it was ruled a single. I think that was very favorable. But Cabrera ends up on second, gets the throw on a wild pitch, but there's no damage because Nico Goodrum strikes out on a fastball up. And the Royals were really attacking Goodrum on fastballs up, too, so that seems like an emerging weakness. Top of the second, Norris gets a ground out, and then an error on Jordy Mercer. They, he was shifted, playing more like second base. Couldn't get the ball out of his glove. But uh, Norris picked off the runner, Brian Goodwin, trying to steal second, and then got the third out of the inning, so no damage. Tigers go 1-2-3 with a pair of Ks in the second. Top of the third, this is when Norris got into trouble. Cole Calhoun hits a line single up the middle, and then a hard single to right field from Zach Cozart. And, you know, I kind of complain about the players' broadcast earlier in the season, but in this one, Jack Morris and Dan Petrie, who are both just analysts, did a great job during the inning explaining why they think Norris doesn't really resemble the pitcher that the Tigers once saw. To them, it had to do with his extension or lack thereof, basically over his landing leg. He's kind of letting the ball go and not getting out front. And they compared him to Spencer Turnbull, and the difference was pretty stark, the contrast at least. Now, this isn't my area of expertise. I have to ask uh, Brendan Day, bless you boys, about it. But it made sense to me. Anyway, he gives up another hard single. This one to the left field from David Fletcher, and it's one nothing. He gets Mike Trout, you know, the most dangerous hitter on the planet, on an excuse me check swing to first base, but that puts runners at second and third. And then Otani hits a ground out to second base to score the run. He had Otani down 1-2, but left a slider over the middle of the plate, so that was kind of a mistake. It's 2-0, and then a hard single from Anderson Simmons on a 91-mile-an-hour fastball that was inside, but kind of middle in, and it's 3-0 Angels. Bottom of third, Grayson Griner leads off with a walk, but that's about it. Get a pop-out, two strikeouts, got Castellanos looking on a nasty slider. Top of the fourth, Norris works around a two-out walk, no damage, but the Tigers go 1-2-3 in the bottom of the fourth. And then top of the fifth, hard single to left field from Fletcher, but Norris is able to get out of it, gets Trout. And then he gets Otani striking out again, and then he gets Anderson Simmons to fly out, and that was it for Daniel Norris. Five innings pitched, just 90 pitches, only five hits, three earned runs, two walks, only two strikeouts, and both of them were to Otani, the guy who hasn't played in seven months, so that's not great. Just five swings and misses, and four of them were on the slider. 
But only five of the 18 balls in play against him were hit harder than 95 miles an hour, which is good to see. It's, it's better than he's been doing. He didn't look very good to me again, but he continues to not get demolished. So I don't know. Maybe it seems like there's something to work with there. Bottom of the fifth, Tigers go one, two, three again. Canning is really dealing. He's basically through five with no hits, other than that one infield single from Cabrera, which was very, very generous, as I said. So top of the sixth, Zach Reininger comes in. He gets a ground out from Pujols. Gives up a, a flare double to Brian Goodwin down the left field line. Just kind of stuck his bat out and poked it over there. And then gives up a hard single to Jonathan Lucroy to right field. And it's men on first and third. And then a sack fly from Cole Calhoun. And suddenly it's 4 nothing Angels. And the Tigers are looking in trouble because Canning's been dominant. But they get to him in the sixth. And it starts with Jacoby Jones with a hard double and a 92-mile-an-hour fastball at the top of the zone. And then Jammer Candelari hits a shallow blooper to center field that Simmons makes a spectacular play on. He's kind of falling backwards and makes an over-the-shoulder catch that keeps... Jones on second, but Castellanos follows it up with a hard triple to the right center field gap. 4-1 four, four Tigers, and then Cabrera right after that it says serves a, a line drive single to center field. It's 4-2, and that's it for Canning. He ended up going five and a third, four hits, two and runs, a walk, seven strikeouts, 86 pitches. He got his first MLB win, so good for him. He got 19 swings and misses, 13 of them with the slider, and nine of the 13 balls in play against him were under 95 miles an hour. It was a really impressive performance. He was just the third player from the 2017 draft to make the majors and the second to get a win behind first-rounder Kyle, Kyle Wright of Atlanta and San Diego's seventh-rounder Nick Markovicius. Yeah, and Kenny was generally pretty nasty. His fastball's not crazy. You know, the velocity's mostly 92-94, but it was effective, and that slider was really good, sitting 87-88, darting away from right-handed hitters. And he also has a nice slow curve in the low 80s and a hard change at, like, 88. Seems basically out of the whole package, good command and everything. So he's, he's not the biggest guy in the world. I, I worry a little bit about durability, and it, the velocity seemed to tick down there in the sixth, but the Angels should be pretty happy about him. Anyway, so... Tigers have Cabrera on, and then the Angels bring in Luke Bard, and he gets Nico Goodrum striking out on 91 low and away, and then a pop-out to finish the inning. For the seventh, we get Eduardo Jimenez's MLB debut. I prepared you guys for this, hopefully. And he strikes out David Fletcher looking at 95 on the bottom edge. It's just Fletcher's fifth strikeout this year, which is pretty amazing. But he follows that up with an absolutely murdered double off the wall from Mike Trout. 115 miles an hour off the bat. Just the 19th ball hit that hard in all of baseball this year. And then Shohei Otani hit a sharp line drive the other way, but it was snagged by Candelario to, to save a run. And then Eduardo Menos gets in an absurd pop-up from Simmons. Uh, it, just a ridiculous, it was like a slider up and in, and Simmons was basically like leaning out of the way and swung at it, and it was very embarrassing. He looked like a buffoon. Uh, maybe you can see highlights of it. I, I suggest you look him out. So, all in all, you know, some hard contact, but not a bad first inning in MLB debut for Eduardo Jimenez. Good for him. Bottom of seventh, Luke Bard's still back out there. Gets one, two, three. Tiger's not doing any damage. Top of the eighth, Victor Alcantara is in. Gives up a two-out walk, but nothing more. And then the bottom of the eighth... The Angels put in Ty Buttrey, who they acquired from Boston in the Ian Kinsler trade, and he, he's currently leading their team in pitching war, and yet it looks like the Angels got a bit more by trading Kinsler than the Tigers did, although I do like Wilkel Hernandez. But anyway, yeah, he was throwing 98 with a solid curveball at like 83 and got a quick 1-2-3 inning. Top of the ninth, Jose Fernandez is in for the Tigers, gets a fly out to center field and a ground out, you know, two quick outs, but then he walks Mike Trout, who then steals in, uh, in the shift nobody was covering, and then Otani walks, and then comes Buck Farmer, and he gives up an RBI single to Andrelton Simmons, which makes it 5-2, and that's the way it would stay. Uh, Hansel Robles comes into the ninth, gets a weak grounder from Miguel Cabrera. Nico Goodrum gets a single the other way, which is nice for him. And Ronnie Rodriguez hits a deep fly ball to right center field, but Cole Calhoun runs it down. And then Harold Castro strikes out looking on 98 miles an hour outside of the zone, but that's the way it goes, and the Tigers lose 5-2. Go get him tomorrow. So quick preview for today's game. It's... Matthew Boyd versus Tyler Skaggs. Boyd has been one of the best pitchers in baseball. We've talked about that a lot. Uh, and he's taken on a team that struggled against lefties. There's not a whole lot of experience against them in that lineup, though Simmons is 3-for-3 three three with the homer, and Goodwin is 1-for-1 one one with a homer. But Otani, Trout, 
Calhoun and Pujols are combined one for 13. Tigers would probably like to get seven innings from Boyd. I'm sure they would like that from every starter. The bullpen isn't particularly taxed. Farmer could probably go again, and Reed Garrett and Stumpf and Joe Jimenez and Green should all be good to go. Tyler Skaggs is the opponent. He's a lefty with a low 90s fastball, a mid-70s curve, and a mid-80s changeup, you know, the basic three-pitch mix. Change seems to be his most effective pitch this this year, although his curve is kind of literally hit and miss. It's his main strikeout pitch, but he also gets hit very hard with it. And the Tigers don't have much history against him, but they've done really well when they've seen him. Cabrera's 4-for-6 with a double and a homer. Castellanos is 2-for-3. Beckham's 2-for-3. And Candelario, John Hicks, Nico Goodrum, and Jacoby Jones are all 1-for-2. So I would think there'd be a chance for some runs here. So over the weekend, there was a story about Miguel Cabrera's lack of power production. It's something we've touched on here. And if you weren't aware, Cabrera has just one home run this year. And you might not also be aware of of the stat isolated power or ISO or ISO, depending on who's saying it. It's just slugging percentage minus batting average. It's kind of designed to to just get a better idea of pure power production. Uh, Anyway, Cabrera's ISO right now is .072, which is 171st out of 176 qualified hitters in baseball. He's below Josh Harrison. Uh, Jose Iglesias' career ISO as a Tiger was .096. So that's what kind of power production we're getting from Cabrera right now. I'm not saying it's going to last, and it almost certainly won't, but right now it's an issue for him. So people are asking questions. And in an article from The Freep by Chris Nelson, he was asked about his lack of power production, and Cabrera said this. He said, I don't worry about home runs. I worry about getting my job done. Fans need to understand baseball first. After that, if they need to worry about something, they'll worry. They don't need to worry about power, which is fine. I, you know, they're not really saying much there. But then he was also quoted as saying this. He said, you know, Prince Fielder, you know who's hitting behind me right now? That's a big difference, too. How am I going to hit 40 home runs? In the past, I got Prince Fielder, Victor Martinez, Johnny Peralta. I got a big bat behind me. You see the ways guys pitch me? That explains everything. So yes, if you're hearing that right, Cabrera is basically blaming his teammates for his lack of power production. And my initial instinct was to go off on Cabrera for this, and I did. I actually recorded it and did everything on Sunday night, but I didn't have time to use it the last two nights. And I'm glad because it's not really my style. I'm not like a hot take guy, and I don't like to condemn people for things they say because I'm really at a severe information disadvantage. You know, I'm not there in the locker room. I don't know what kind of teammate Miguel Cabrera really is. And you don't always get the full context in the quotes. Although I will say this, there was there was a subsequent quote from Ron Gardenhire that infuriated me. And he was asked about if he was going to talk to the team about what Cabrera said. And he said, no, hell no. I don't touch stuff like that. You don't need to. Cabrera's the man around here. He's the boss. And just... So my reaction is saying, what the hell? Why do you have a job, Gardenhire? What, what is the point of having you if you don't stick up for your other players? What do you actually do as a manager? You can you fill out the lineup, basically, but you can get a parrot to do that, and the parrot probably would put Josh Harrison at batting leadoff for most of the season. I just remember Jim Leland, you know, who had plenty of flaws as a manager, and he would sit there and cry for the underdogs, guys like Don Kelly. And then there's also a clip of him just going off on Barry Bonds, tearing him a new one, in spring training back in the Pirates days. So I just, I can't imagine Jim Leland sitting there and just saying, yeah, Cabrera's the boss. But anyway, like I said, yelling at players and managers isn't really my style. It's not, not the thing I like to do. But I think we can look at Cabrera's argument that the lack of big bats behind him is causing issues and see if there's any merit to it. And that seems more like my style, right? You know, getting really nerdy with some numbers and stuff. So the, the question is essentially, is lineup protection a real thing or a myth? Does having a good hitter behind you mean you're more likely to get pitches to hit? Unfortunately for us, there have been a lot of studies about this, including some that are very relevant to our needs. And also David Lorela from Fangraphs did a great question and answer session back in 2015 with coaches and players 
about this to see if it exists. And he got a lot of different answers. Joe Girardi basically looked at it like he likes protecting hitters by putting lefties and righties back-to-back for late innings and relievers. That's not really the, the point here, Joe, but still interesting the way to see the manager looks at it. But among the players, there wasn't a ton of consensus, other than most of the hitters think it's real, and the pitchers tend to be conscious of who was in the on-deck circle. So we know it exists in as much as the players are conscious of it. But what do the stats say? So the studies have shown that when good hitters don't have much of a threat behind them, they do tend to get pitched around a bit. That they, they walk at a much higher rate and they strike out a bit higher, presumably from expanding the zone, trying to make things happen. And sure enough, Cabrera's strikeouts are up a bit. They're up to 25%, which is the highest of his career, but his walk rate is down 2%. So he's either expanding a ton or he's not getting pitched around. And we can look at that too. And what we see is that he's seeing more sliders and fewer fastballs than at any time in his career, but that's also a league-wide trend, so I don't know if it's just a Cabrera thing. And he's seeing first-pitch strikes at a rate at about 7% higher than his career level, so that doesn't seem like he's getting pitched around to me. I think it's worth noting that he is swinging at fewer pitches in the zone this year than the rest of his career, so I don't know if he's getting fooled or just getting back into game action. It's 67% this year compared to 72% in his career, and he's making contact on pitches in the zone at the lowest rate of his career, 83.3% compared to a career average of 86.7%. None of this really suggests that he's getting pitched around to me. And remember, this wasn't an issue of walks and hits and strikeouts. It was an issue about a lack of power. And all the studies about lineup protection have shown that there's no demonstrable effect on batted ball results based on who's hitting in front of you or behind you. And, And luckily for us, there's even a case study about this done involving none other than Miguel Cabrera and Prince Fielder from 2012. It was done by Jeff Sullivan at Fangraphs, and he looked at how Cabrera performed in 2012 compared to 2011 when he had Victor Martinez behind him, and then 2010 when he had Brennan Bosch and others. And Cabrera, of course, won the Triple Crown in 2012, so that was certainly no small feat. Uh, but he was essentially the same hitter as he was the year before. He had fewer walks and more home runs. That's, that's not nothing to sneeze at, but there was no evidence that pitchers approached him any differently that year. He got the same percentage of fastballs, the same percentage of first-pitch fastballs. It, it turns out that pitchers mostly just want to get the hitter out who they're facing. They don't really think too much more than that most of the time. Uh, so if I had to point to any culprit for Cabrera's lack of power, it's probably just age. You know, he's getting up there. So I'm going to finish with a couple of listener questions. we got one from Kyle, and he asked, Is Eliezer Afonso still in the organization? I haven't seen any stats, so maybe the Gulf Coast League just hasn't started yet. I really like him as a player, so I'm hoping that's the case. And he, there's an easy answer here, which is nice. Yes, Eliezer Afonso is still in the organization. He just isn't in a full-season league like you, you, you thought. He's down in Florida playing in extended spring training games because the short-season leagues haven't started. They typically don't start until about the second or third week of June after the draft. And for those wondering who Alfonso is, he's a 19-year-old switch-hitting catcher from Venezuela. He comes from a baseball family. His, his dad, of the same name, was a backup catcher in the big leagues for like five, six years, parts of five, six seasons. And the younger Alfonso mostly stands out for his baseball instincts. You know, he's a good, solid defensive catcher and the sort of cerebral player who goes on and becomes a manager one day. Uh, he's not terribly big or twitchy. He's like 5'10", 160, 170 pounds. So he's probably not going to hit for much power. He doesn't have a ton of bat speed, but he's a good eye at the plate, and he'll probably do enough to keep pitchers honest. At the very least, he seems like a great organizational catcher in the future, You know, somebody who's going to be able to move around the organization and, and really work well with pitchers. But I wouldn't be shocked at all if he ends up carving out kind of a similar career to his dad as, as a major league backup for a few seasons. And the final question here is from Brett. He says, I'm from Windsor, and a fellow I played against growing up is Jake Robson. Do you think he has the ability to play in the big leagues, or is he a career minor leaguer? The short answer here is yes, I do think he has the ability to play in the majors. And Robson is a 24-year-old outfielder. The Tigers took in the eighth round of the 2016 draft out of Mississippi State, and he is originally from Ontario. He's an above-average runner. He's a good, solid defender in the outfield. He's one of the few players in the organization who actually takes a lot of walks, and he even has some sneaky power. 
He had a bit of a breakout campaign last year. He hit close to 300 with double-digit homers and steals, moving from double-A to triple-A. But he's off to a rough start this year. He's hitting just 198 with a couple of homers and a 30% strikeout rate. So, again, I think the talent is there for him to make the majors, but there are a lot of things that have to go his way, and there are some warts in his game. Uh, He's been one of the most extreme ground ball hitters in baseball the last few years, to the point where it's almost like two ground outs for every flyout. And that's not always an awful thing when you have plus speed. You You can hit the ball on the ground and run. But there's no slug on the ground, as they say. You know, we're living in an age where guys need to hit for some power. He seemingly tried to lower those ground ball numbers in the past two seasons. He actually started using a heavier bat last year, which seemed to help a little bit. But they're still awfully high. And this year, those grounders have mostly turned into infield fly balls, which is the worst kind of contact you can make. So that's that's not a great sign. And he's also, he's not an efficient base stealer, despite having speed. He's only at 63.5%. And you might remember from an episode uh, last week that you need to be at around 75% just to break even. And he strikes out a bit too much for a kid with this kind of profile, this low power ground ball profile. I don't think he's going to stay at 30% this year in the minors, but he was at 25% last year in double A AA and AAA. And you can probably guess that he'd be closer to 30% in the majors. And that's just... You don't see a lot of players like that with that sort of low power, high strikeout rate, even with the walks, unless they play premium defense like a Jackie Bradley or a Willie Adamas or something like that. And, and Robson is more average to slightly above average. So he definitely has a chance to be a fourth outfielder. I, I wouldn't say he's going to be a regular. But then there are issues there beyond his own control. He's not on the 40-man roster right now. And ahead of him in the pecking order right now are you know, Kristen Stewart, Jacoby Jones, Dustin Peterson, Victor Reyes, Brandon Dixon, Nico Goodrum, Harold Castro, and Ronnie Rodriguez. All those guys can play outfield right now. And if they want to add somebody from off the 40-man roster, say after a Castellanos trade, he has to contend with kind of more highly regarded Daz Cameron, for one, and, and as well as like Danny Woodrow, who's also there in Toledo and hitting fairly well, and possibly even Mikey Matuk again. So, I don't know, there's not a ton of talent in front of him, per se, but there's an awful lot of bodies, and so he's really going to have to step up his performance or he's going to risk being lost in the shuffle. So thanks to Kyle and Brett for those questions. I always appreciate those. And thanks to everyone for listening. That's the show for today. I remind you to go ahead and send me questions at chrisbrown0914 at Twitter or at LockedOnTigers on Twitter or at LockedOnTigers at gmail.com. And go ahead and check out some of the other fine Locked On podcasts, you know, Locked On Lions, Locked On Pistons, any of the shows about your favorite teams because we've basically got you covered everywhere. And that's it. I'll be back tomorrow to discuss the second game of the series and maybe the Tigers will pull out a win. So thanks for listening. I'll talk to you soon.